1: It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram at LAistOfficial, where you can join the conversation and come spend some time with us. It's so nice to be with you on a Friday. Later on this hour, we're going to look at the evolution of the so called third space. You know, those places that kids and teens hang out that aren't home or school. You probably had one yourself growing up. What do today's Third Spaces look like, though? And do young people even want them? That's all coming up. I, of course, want to hear about the places that you found community when you were young. A little bit later, it's Food Friday, and we are going to sip some teas courtesy of Lati Tea House in Clover City. They just got delivered, and I am so excited. We're also going to take your calls on the best boba in SoCal, so stick around for that, Okay. But we start with an eye on City Hall today. It's faced a flurry of scandals lately. Racist tapes, corruption on the council, toxic workplaces. Enter the Los Angeles Governance Reform Project. That is a group of university leaders out this week with their final recommendations on ways to improve accountability and equity in city governance. The co chairs of the project are with me to share. They are Anjumari Hancock, Executive Director of the Kierwan Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at The Ohio State University, also formerly a professor at USC. Anjumari, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Oh, great to be with you, Austin.
1: And Gary Segura, a professor of public policy, political science, and Chicano Chicana studies at UCLA. Gary, thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Well, Professor Hancock, to start us off, uh, talk to me a little bit about the significance of this moment in Los Angeles history, where in the wake of so many s- scandals, we're now plotting a path forward that involves some major changes to the way that the government serves the people of Los Angeles.
2: Yes, I think that's one of the things that we can think of as one of the key takeaways from what happened in 2022 when those uh, audio tapes were released. Mm. Um I think people were shocked, people were amazed. Um, Not so much, and this was what the telling moment was, not so much that these conversations happened, um, but that they were happening Seemingly without it, with impunity, right? Folks were just talking explicitly open about the way in which redistricting was taking place, um, you know, and using such racist language and homophobic language. Um, Mm. And so I think that really launched a moment in time here in Los Angeles for all of us as a community to really come together and say, what are the key moments? Um, So a lot of our work really centered on figuring out what that consensus in Los Angeles really was about, um, and then what did that mean for the future of how government should be more responsive, more accountable, and more transparent.
1: I mean, it is so interesting that there had long been talks about potential reform for LA City's governance, but it did kind of take those tapes to break things wide open. Professor Segura, um, I understand that part of the formation of these recommendations uh, came about through focus groups with LA voters. Uh, There was also some polling done. Can you just tell us a little bit about the people who worked with you to arrive at the suggestions that we're going to talk about in just a
3: second? Sure. Um, We contracted with two different organizations. Ebony Marketing System ran our focus groups for us, uh, and we did 12 focus groups across the region uh, with different racial, ethnic and gender composition, including a a focus group of non-binary folk. And then we also did a poll uh, of, uh, I believe it was 1,600 total uh, respondents. uh, And the Interviewing Services of America ran the poll for us. Unlike what is customarily the case with hiring um, data gathering organizations, because we were a group of professors, we actually wrote the the questionnaire, we wrote Mm. the focus group guide. We just asked them to implement it, which they did and did quite effectively. So we have feedback from individuals and face-to-face conversations, as well as lots of interview subjects from every corner of the city and from every group, every demographic group, every interest, every point of view is represented in in both our qualitative and quantitative work.
1: That's so important. I figured that was an important question to put up front. I will say, behind the scenes for journalism, we usually don't ask the how of how a study or results were gotten until later on in the conversation. But uh, in a conversation where representation is so important, it did seem like something important to put up at the top of the conversation. With that, let's dive into some of the recommendations. The first has to do with independent redistricting commissions, specifically establishing two, one for L.A. City and one for L.A. Unified. Professor Hancock, for folks who maybe have not been following this as closely uh, as you know journalists do, why is this so crucial in your view?
2: Well, there are two things that, again, somebody who maybe is just tuning in and, and hearing about, you know, why LAUSD? Why, you know, is it separate? Um The LAUSD, the Los Angeles Unified School District, is actually governed in the Los Angeles City Charter. And so, one thing that we thought was really important, particularly uh, Gary and my colleague um, Fernando Guerra from Loyola Marymount, Mm, he took on the responsibility of really diving into the LAUSD specific parts of what we did because we wanted to make sure if we were going to recommend an independent redistricting commission that we would do so in a way that would certainly talk about what needed to happen in districts that are affecting, you know, who gets elected to the city council, but we also needed to think about the way in which there might need to be a commission for the la unified school district again elected based on different districts not the same districts as city council so we wanted to make sure we addressed both of those at the same time and didn't ignore or overlook LAUSD.
1: i mean i found it also interesting in here that there's a three-year residency requirement there's disclosure rules for political donations And based off of the people you spoke to about this, about 75% of them said that they would vote yes uh, on a policy like this. Professor Segura, the next recommendation that we've talked a lot about here on LAist, actually, it's this recommendation to increase the size of the city council from 15 members to 25. And included in that, this is what I found really interesting, five at-large members, which I'm What I'm getting from that, and you can let me know if I'm right or wrong on this one, they would not be assigned to a particular region. Can you tell me a bit about this recommendation?
3: Uh, That's actually not correct. So we have five regional seats. So they're elected at large within that region, but not citywide. And the idea we have here is that for every four uh, single member districts, there would be a a a council member who would represent the region as well. Mm. Um, And the idea there was twofold. First of all, why enlarge it? We have more than a quarter million souls in every city council district in Los Angeles. It stretches the the boundaries of what anyone would consider local representation. Uh, 260 to 270,000 people per district. By increasing the number of districts, you reduce that. But the second problem has to do with the number of ways that people can contact, uh, have their voice heard. And right now, because each member of our electorate, of our citizenry, of our community is represented by one and only one person, that's their conduit. And if that's not a good conduit for them, they're not gonna have their voice heard. So in this case, by having these superordinate districts, these uh, four district uh, regional districts, every member of the Los Angeles community has two members. Who represents them on the city council and then the third really important issue has to do with the ethical implications so one of our concerns was all the all the scandal that's enveloped city hall in the last several years and a big part of that is the unwritten but clearly used rule that land use decisions are made by the city council member in whose Mm. district it occurs And that makes that person a czar over huge amounts of of, uh, profit and revenue and the flow of money and development and so forth. And the reason we're given by city council members for this deference is that the one council member from that district, he or she is the only person who knows that neighborhood well. Well, that's no longer gonna be true. There'll be two people who know that neighborhood well. And we wanna do away with that veto. We think it invites problems.
1: Talking right now with Gary Segura, co-chair of the Los Angeles Governance Reform Project, professor of public policy, political science, Chicano, Chicana Studies, UCLA. Also with us is Aunt Marie Hancock, a co-chair of the Los Angeles Governance Reform Project, also professor, executive director of the Kirwan Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at the Ohio State. And uh, what we are talking about right now is uh, some final proposals put forward by this project that would change uh, governance in LA City, of course, if uh, they are voted on. Uh, Professor Hancock, I, I do have to ask about expanding uh, the council. And I come back to the numbers on the people who, that you worked with, who you spoke to, who uh, said they would vote yes on this or they would vote no. Um, when it came to at least 21 seats, 75, about 76% of registered voters said, yes, sure, 21 seats sounds good. You up it to 25 seats, um, you get 66% support. So that support actually falls when you start talking about more seats. Now, what I'm thinking just off the top of my head is, you know, expanding districts, more people means higher costs. Was that a concern of those people maybe that led to that drop off? Is there something else that you're seeing?
2: Well, certainly we got lots of questions about costs in the focus groups. Um, And so one of the things that we did, and one of the things I think is really unique about this effort is our team and a group of researchers that worked with us produced about 18 different research briefs where we chased down every rabbit hole, if you will, um, to kind of see what the implications would be. And one of those was uh, a budgetary analysis. Um, And what we discovered is that if we were to increase the council to the size of 25 it would represent a cost increase of less than one half of one percent of the city budget um and so we didn't see that there was a lot of cost in actually increasing um, the number of the council at least not in the way that people were concerned about would it balloon us to 10 or 20 percent more of the budget um And so one of the recommendations we have that's in association with, you know, again, the concerns that the focus groups expressed um, and maybe that drop off you were just talking about um, really is that there would also be a cap at the increase in costs for the city council to 1% or less, right? So Mm. that definitely covers the less than half a percent that we, our own budgetary analysis, which was completed by Dr. Kendrick Roberson of Pepperdine, would actually um, consider.
1: Yeah, I imagine that's very, very important to people, the cost overall. I want to get to the last recommendation on here. It addresses ethics reforms. And as I read this, I'm getting that an independent ethics commission would have the authority to vote on ethics rules that the LA City Council must abide by, but I want to fact check that with you, Professor Hancock, because of course sometimes my interpretations can be off. Is that close or or not? It is.
2: I'm sorry. What is what close? Well, sorry, the,
1: this one. thought that the um, the Independent Ethics Commission would they have the authority to vote on ethics rules that the City Council would have to abide by.
2: Ah, The idea here would be that the Ethics Commission would put forth things on the ballot for voters to decide. Mm. Um, So it's not that the Ethics Commission itself would, I mean, obviously they would have to vote as a supermajority to say, yes, we want to go to the ballot. Um, But it wouldn't automatically, it wouldn't be the Ethics Commission automatically then implementing the rule. The idea would be they vote as to whether or not they want to put it on the ballot Um, directly without having the city council have the opportunity to review it, water it down potentially, ignore it if they just don't agree with it, you know, so we really wanted to make sure that when the ethics committee, uh, ethics commission, excuse me, thought it was a good idea or it was important enough, they had the opportunity to go to voters directly, rather than going through the city council to actually get to the voters, which is the current way that things are arranged.
1: Professor Segura, also part of this, an expansion of the Ethics Commission, but it also looks like the mayor and the city council president would also get to choose one member. Is that correct?
3: Yeah. So right now our Ethics Commission is appointed by elected officials uh, with a a fairly substantial uh, set of criteria that we would want to impose. So we would like to impose a selection criteria on the Ethics Commission similar to the criteria that we impose on the newly created independent redistricted commissions in terms of how someone must, uh, what qualifications someone must meet to be considered. When we added two, we had to come up with a method of their selection, and we thought that the mayor and the council president would be the two uh, most common. One suggestion that came up in a public presentation was that maybe there should be a different selection process for the ethics commission. Speaking only for myself, I'd be open to that. Uh, But our biggest concern is that the Ethics Commission have capacity, and by increasing its size, by making sure it has a well-funded budget that cannot be cut if city council members become unhappy with them, Mm. uh, that they have access to hiring their own council, that they would not be held under the thumb of the elected officials, that they could act on the basis of what they thought was best without fear of retaliation that might make it impossible for them to do their job. So our ethics proposals, including the expansion, is just designed to give the ethics commission more capacity.
1: I mean, again, speaking just for yourself, you said you would be open to maybe choosing that ethics commission a a different way. Would that maybe be a way where the mayor and uh,
3: the city council president would not get to choose a member? well no i i would the entire process as it works right now um members of the ethics commission are selected by right, elected right, officials right. and subject to confirmation by the group uh and then we would move maybe to the the, the random selection system like we're doing with the independent regulatory uh, independent redistricting commissions and so forth uh but again we have not worked on that as a group and i don't want to speak out of turn that is just my own view after Uh, a question we received publicly yesterday. Of course. That's
1: Gary Segura, professor of public policy, political science, Chicano, Chicana studies at UCLA. We also heard from Anjumarie Hancock, executive director of the Kirwan Institute for the study of race and ethnicity at The Ohio State University. My thanks to you both for coming on. When we come back on AirTalk, we are going to talk about third spaces. You know, those kind of places where you used to hang out after school with your friends. We're gonna look at the state of third spaces among young people today. My understanding, it's a little bit uh, in danger right now. We're gonna talk about that just ahead, stick around.
4: Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradicion that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
1: It's Airtalk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram at LAistOfficial. Let's take a walk down memory lane. When we were younger, so much younger than today, our skin was smooth and taut. We didn't groan when getting up from chairs. We were too young to take on meaningful employment. Yeah, we had to go to school. But when that bell rang, At the end of the day, it was almost as if the Liberty Bell herself was singing, come out, play, live, and oh, the places we would go. Maybe it was a park or maybe a mall. For high school me growing up in Rancho Cucamonga, shout out Rancho, it was the parking lot outside of Corky's Restaurant just off of Haven. Nothing fancy, just a place where we could gather with friends to talk, play, goof around. So these are called third spaces. Sad fact though, many adults don't have one now. And young people, most of them are trading FaceTime for screen time. Now it has been a rough few years for third places. The pandemic hit our social lives hard. We know this. So the question here is where are young people gathering if at all, and what tips can we maybe take to help bring some balance to our social lives? Now we're gonna talk about that in just a minute but I wanna know from you. When you were younger, where did you hang out? What was your third space and why? We also want to know maybe if you have a third space now, special in your life as an adult. I'd like to hear about that too. But specifically, just to start off, if you're a person who's thinking back on your younger days and just all the fun they used to have at this one spot, give us a call 866 893 5722 is the number 866 893 5722. There's also at comments at laist. Dot com. Just be sure to include your location and first name. Well, joining us to discuss Third Spaces is Renee Yassine. She writes the Washington Post's Postgrad column. That's a weekly series dedicated to the experience of recent graduates and early career professionals. Renee, thank you so much for coming on.
5: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Also with us, Gene Twangy, professor of psychology at San Diego State University and author of Generations The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. Gene, thank you so much for coming on.
0: You're very welcome.
1: Renee, to start us off, you started your own Third Spaces project. You wrote about it in a series of columns. To help us frame this conversation, what were you observing about your life and those of your peers that led you to look into this topic?
5: Sure, yeah. So I had just graduated from college in twenty twenty two, and I had spent, you know, the first year post grad, um, you know, honestly, pretty lonely. I had stayed in my hometown for work, and um, most of my friends had moved away by that point. And so I was really, you know, actively looking for places and opportunities that would feel like that second home, that third place um, for social life, for fun, exchanging ideas, that kind of thing. Um, And, you know, it really started as like an experimental thing with the column of um, what would it actually look like, uh, you know, to go out and test how difficult it is to actually find these places um, and and show people um, you know, that they're not alone in, in having difficulty finding third spaces in their communities when they move to a new city after college or stay in their hometown.
1: Now, I know we talk a lot about, we say in air quotes here, young people uh, on radio, and often we don't actually ask them what's happening on the ground actually in their lives. But do you think that technology is inhibiting people's embrace of real life third spaces?
5: I think so, um, and I, I would say it's not just, you know, having technology, the presence of smartphones in our hands, um, it's it's really like, you know, the habits that we develop uh, as a result of having that technology so easily accessible to us um, that leads our sort of social muscles to kind of atrophy over time. You know, mm. we put our headphones in, in public, We are, our eyes are not, you know, making eye contact with other people, our eyes are on our phones, so we just become slightly, you know, out of practice in socializing when we get so used to having tech on us all the time.
1: Talking right now with Renee Yassian, writer for The Washington Post's post-grad column. And, of course, I want to hear from you. When you were younger, where did you hang out? What was your third space and why? We also want to know if you have a third space now that's really special in your life. 866-893-5722 is the number, 866-893-5722. Deanna is calling us from Rancho Cucamonga. Deanna, where was your third space?
6: Well, um, Austin, I wanted to say when you said your third space was the Corky's on Haven, I was literally driving past that. (laughs) That was really funny. Amazing. And then as an Inland Empire millennial, I loved hanging out at the Montclair Plaza Food Court and the Victoria Gardens Food Court. And now as a young mom, I take those my kids to those places for us to meet other young
1: parents. Oh, that's so wonderful that it stayed with you as you've grown up and you've gone through the different stages in life. We also used to, just growing up in Rancho, go to Victoria Gardens. I think specifically it was to talk to girls, but uh, it's so <laughs> nice to hear that you can find a use for it You know, after the age of 15 or so. Uh, that's Deanna and Rancho Cucamonga. Deanna, thank you so much for sharing. eight six six eight nine three five seven two two. 893 if there is a third space uh, that you uh, grew up with that you would like to shout out, that you have a lot of pleasant memories from. Now, I want to bring up some breaking news for you. The Los Angeles Chargers have fired head coach Brandon Staley and general manager Tom Telesco following last night's embarrassing loss to the Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, We're watching that story for you here in the LAS newsroom, but I wanted to raise that breaking news as we continue. Gene Twenge, professor of psychology at San Diego State University. When did we start to see the decline of the third space?
0: Well, um, I think the most interesting trends are just when we started to see overall the decline in teens and young adults spending a lot of time with each other in person whether that's a third space or at each other's homes. Um, And we have great data on that from Mm. time use surveys. And there was a decline starting around 2000, but it was pretty gradual until about the early 2010s when the smartphone became ascendant and social media became much more popular. And at that point, there was just an enormous decline Mm. in the, amount of time that, uh, young people spent with each other, whether that's going to the mall or driving around in a car or just hanging out with each other.
1: So did virtual hangouts, and when you say it, it sounds so obvious because I think about what happened to our social life. And granted, I was coming of age as technology was, uh, you know it was starting to show up in everybody's lives but it just wasn't as advanced yet you know we were playing snake on our uh, razor phones we weren't quite at the stage where you know swiping videos endlessly online but do virtual hangouts uh did they in any way replace social hangouts or in real life hangouts but specifically did they replace the social benefits or are we not getting those benefits from those
0: yeah i think that's exactly what what happened so uh, what Renee was saying is is really ca- captures it, that it's a habit or it's a social norm. And the social norm and habits have shifted, that it's not as much the norm anymore to hang out with your friends in person. Those online strategies for communicating um, have really won out. But the question is, does that matter? Because a lot of people have made this argument, oh, you know, young people are just... Um, communicating with each other, hanging out with each other online. So Mm. that's what teens have always done. They're just doing it in a different way. Well, one way to answer that question is, does it matter for mental health and happiness? And it does, because people who spend more time online are less happy and more likely to be depressed. And those who spend more time with each other in person, it's the opposite. They're happier and um, less likely to be depressed.
1: I know this goes back a very long way, but I recall there was a real push in the 80s, 90s. Teens wanted their own phone in their own room or something like that. I don't know if there's a data on this, but is there a value to hearing the voice of a person? Does that at all add to the, your mental well-being, uh, maybe allow your brain to feel as though you're still getting some sort of social experience?
0: Anything that's in real time. Whether that's a phone call or you know Zoom or Facetime, is going to be a little bit uh, more productive uh, for happiness than, say, social media, where it's more performative, it's more for a group, it's not in real time. Um, and sure enough, you know, hours spent on video chat is mm. much more weakly linked to unhappiness than say hours spent on social media.
1: is our number if you would like to share a childhood third space, a place where you just hang out with your friends and get away from it all that has a lot of uh, meaning to you. 866-893-5722 is our number. Jennifer is calling us from Santa Monica. Jennifer, what was your space? Hi.
6: um, I grew up in Toronto in the mid-80s and my friends and I would walk from, like along a big commercial street, kind of like Ventura Boulevard, and we'd just walk from the top of it all the way down to the bottom, shopping, snacking, talking, and we just walk up and down. It would take us like a couple of hours, and it was just the thing we did.
1: How often would you do this?
6: At least once a week, I think. We would definitely meet up on weekends, or we'd meet up after school sometimes, and it was just how we connected.
1: That's wonderful. Was it the sort of thing that you would just look forward to? You're like, I can't wait for this walk time. I got to talk to my friend about, you know, this boy or this life event that's happening.
6: Yeah, especially because we stopped going to the same school together. So mm. it was just a really nice thing we did. And a way to, the minute you asked, did anybody have a third space? That was the first thing I thought of. It was that and cafes and um always gathering in person, which I see my son who's 16, he doesn't always have that as much.
1: That's Jennifer in Santa Monica. Jennifer, thank you so much. And Jennifer brings up such an important point um, that when you're young and you don't have a car, uh, especially before the internet was super popular, uh, if your friend went to another school, you almost lost, almost surely lost that friend. Um, So the beauty of that third space, and I'm sure, they show up in other people's lives as well. The beauty of that third space is you actually can still retain that friendship. You can still um, enjoy that person's company uh, and not have to deal with factors that are often so outside of our control when we're young. 866 is our number if you have a third space that you would like to share that has special meaning to you. That's a place you maybe went when you were younger, hung out with friends, had food, Hung out, goofed around. That's what I want to hear about. 866-893-5722. Also, at comments at laist.com. Chris is calling from Cerritos. Uh, Chris, what have you noticed about the third space adjacent to your life?
7: Um, I well, I'm a tennis coach, and um, I've noticed that the like students that I have in my class, they they use that time for their third space a lot like Mm. this has been going on for like years you know um so they use that as their third space um they've developed like relationships they've met you know friends for you know for a lifetime through that and then i noticed that they they study all day so when they come when they have time to finally like do their own thing they go to tennis class and they use that as their third space
1: Wow. That's Chris and Cerritos. Chris, thank you so much for sharing. 866-893-5722 is our number if there's a third space that has a lot of meaning to you. I want to come back to Renee Yassine, who writes for the Washington Post's post-grad column because, Renee, you've been writing about this and you kind of went on the journey yourself. You took us along with you. You tried out rock climbing, uh, pottery studio. This is as an effort as a young adult, fresh out of college, to find uh, connection, what were some things that you noticed when you started putting yourself out there? Maybe about yourself or about just the nature of relationships?
5: Yeah, I mean, it was really transformative for me um, to make that intention, you know, for six weeks. Um, it was, you know, obviously part of my job, uh, which made it a little easier to have that mm-hmm. kind of discipline and consistency with it. Um, but that honestly, you know, improved the experience for me, um, is just having that consistency. It's really important to have the, the right intentions of like, yes, I'm going to go out into public and I'm going to talk to new people and ask them questions about their lives. Mm. Um, I think I learned, you know, really something about the power of asking questions, asking good questions and actively listening, um, people love when you ask them questions about themselves people love to talk about themselves and it's just really interesting when you can you know uh you know hear someone's life story in, in a third space mm. um so you know staying curious is something i really learned during that time um i i also think uh i learned a lot about body language and the importance of you know projecting the right kind of confidence ah. when you are Uh, you know, going to a new place alone. Sometimes we can kind of shrink ourselves when we're a little nervous um, or we don't make eye contact. We're not used to it. We're used to looking at our phones in every awkward silence. But um, for me, you know, I had to really learn that actually, if you can project confidence in your mannerisms and your body language, then it sets the tone and sets other people at ease when you're having those conversations. Um, And then the last thing I learned Um, the last thing I learned is sort of like, you know, I I think conditioned from college, um, sometimes we think that the friends that we're going to have in our twenties are going to be other people in their twenties in the same stage of life. And those kinds of friends are really important, but in third spaces, it's, it's everybody, you know, it's just your community, whatever that looks like. So you meet people, um, from all walks of life, you can have intergenerational friendships. And I think that was really a cool part of the challenge, too.
1: I, I love this part of one of your pieces. You said, unsurprisingly, forcing myself to go to a new place every week has dramatically improved my small talk, body language, conversational skills, uh, particularly when it comes to asking good questions. And I found that so powerful for me. I think that in day-to-day life, I tend to lean toward being a bit of an introvert. Uh, and even for a time was tempted to think that, oh, the people who are out there and they can just start small talk and start conversations, they just naturally have some ability uh, that I do not possess. Um, and what I really enjoyed about this, and um, about your take on it, is it kind of reminded us that, well, when you start anything, you're bad at it, uh, but you get better at it if, if you keep the momentum. And it sounds like you have a pretty good momentum now.
5: I hope so. Um, it, <laughs> Keep it going.
2: Definitely,
5: yeah, it's definitely something you can learn and, and, you know, vice versa. If you don't use it, like you will lose those skills. So um, I, th- I think my, my top advice to, you know, recent graduates or really anyone is doing your best to just be consistent and, you know, scheduling your social time into your life. Uh, don't just wait for it to happen to you, you know.
1: Yeah, that's so important. This year, my wife and I have made three new friends, and we're so overjoyed because each time—it's because we kind of just took a leap out there. We just started talking to somebody, and then you realize that you have not yet met all the people who you are going to love in this life, and it's just a wonderful thing. Uh, Christian is calling us from La Crescenta. Christian, what's your third space? Hey, how are you this morning?
7: Um, I wanted to talk about, like, I'm a kid from the 80s, so— I think like third spaces, third places, they're just so important and they are kind of gone from our society. So when I was a kid, you know, you go to the mall, you would congregate in these places where you came together, there wasn't any talk of religion or politics, Mm -hmm. and it was just a place to congregate and commune as humans, which we don't do that much anymore. We're the most communal creatures on earth and we don't commune, Um, and And oddly enough, in the last couple of years, I started playing pickleball, which a lot of people have played, but, uh, and so many people are, you know, attracted to the game and love the game. But I found that the thing that people are actually loving the most about it is the communal aspect. They actually, they found a new third place in the game and they find all these new friends across different, every you know, every cross section of humanity is there playing, and it could be somebody who's 80 years old who's got an entirely different life than yours, or it could be someone who's 10 years old who's just starting theirs. Mm. And uh, it's been kind of amazing to to meet people through, you know, a recreational game. Um, that's, and
1: that's Christian that. a Christian, I think we got to get to one more person before we run out of time on this conversation, but I really appreciate you pointing out. Pickleball becoming the third space for you as an adult. Pickleball, and what stood out to me also is that it gives you access to people who are outside of your age group. That's something that we don't often think about, but meeting younger people, it just kind of keeps our perspectives uh, growing and ever-changing. Sandy is calling us from Mar Vista. Sandy, what was your third space?
6: Hi. Well, I, I grew up in the late 50s. And early 60s and we used to hang out this is in brooklyn new york we used to hang out in front of a friend's fourplex that she lived in about 30 or 40 of us would get together every friday saturday and sunday night we would all walk over there it was about 10 blocks from my house um, and uh, it was great uh, i went on to a different high school than most of them with my brother who's a year older so the boys were a year older than the girls um but we still continue to hang out with the same group of people. So it was really great that we got to stay together like that.
1: That sounds wonderful. That's Sandy in Mar Vista. Andrew emailed us and said, I grew up in SoCal, and me and 10 friends grew up at the skate park. I didn't realize how unique of an experience it would be until I was older. We'd spend five to eight hours unsupervised skating, hanging out in person. It was also safe and exposed us to all sorts of interesting and different people, different ages, schools, backgrounds, et cetera. That's Andrew emailing us. Gene Twangy, before we let you go, can you just give us our commissioning? As we go out there in the world, we try to find new relationships, new third spaces. Is there any one thing that you've learned from your research that might help us along the way?
0: Well, it, it's not my research, but it's really fascinating. There's some social psych recent studies finding that when you do these types of things of making conversation with uh, someone you don't know... Uh, Even if it's just small talk, even if it's just giving someone a compliment, most people think that it's not going to be very enjoyable, that it's going to be awkward, that the other person isn't really going to appreciate that. It turns out not to be true. Other people really like that. Hmm. Um, They really get something out of it. And once they have those experiences, people realize, you know, that really helped my mood. Um, I really got something out of that. And people do appreciate those, those compliments and things that, that you say much more than you might think. So I think that's a great lesson for maybe not being so afraid to um, talk to people in these third spaces and elsewhere that we and they will get more out of it than you might think.
1: I love it. That's Jean Twenge, author of Gener- Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean. For America's Future, we also heard from Renee Yassine, author of The Washington Post's Postgrad column. My thanks to you both for coming on. When we come back, it is a Food Friday. We're doing boba today. I am so excited. One of our producers brought it up at the meeting. I was like, yes, yes, we simply must. We're live streaming right now on Instagram at lasofficial. Official. There are different types of boba. I was yesterday years old when I learned that. We're going to try some of those when we come back in 90 seconds. Stick around. Oh, 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 oh,
4: Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradicion that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's
1: Air Talk Friday. I'm Austin Cross on air and live streaming on Instagram at LAist Oh, I just love Food Fridays. And, you know, I love Fridays in general. Not just because I get to spend them with you, though. That's great. But Food Fridays mean that I get to try some wonderful things here uh, in studio, share wonderful things with you. Uh, And today we're going to be sipping on boba or bubble tea, if you prefer that name. It originated in Taiwan in the 80s and has since become a drink enjoyed worldwide. Now in SoCal, it's hard to walk down any street without seeing a shop offering up those little balls of tapioca that I just love to mash with my teeth. You know that feeling, right? Joining us today to talk about its origins and its popularity is the founder and owner of Lati Lounge, Jack Shaw. Jack, thank you so much for coming on today.
8: Thank you, Austin, for having me. And it's I, an honor.
1: I, I really have to thank you because in front of me, Uh, There are five different incredible looking beverages and uh, just a little cup of the Mm -hmm. uh, boba, usually they're tapioca, I believe, pearls uh, that I'm going to try in just a second. But can you Mm -hmm. talk us through a little bit of the brief history of of boba tea and maybe even what boba means?
8: Definitely. So boba, um, it's originated in Taiwan in the 80s. Um, It's uh boba on its own, like the little pearls you mentioned earlier, was uh, been, has been around for hundreds of years. Um tapioca has been uh, uh, in our diet in our culture um for for many, many well, many hundred years. Um then the uh, boba has been like uh, utilizing the, the tapioca has been utilizing as an ingredient in foods, like they made it in the noodles because of an uh, mm. interesting characteristic. And so uh, the bubble tea was invented around the drink, um, uh, around the tea drink, uh, back in the 80s, where uh, the boba was served on its own as a dessert. Uh, that's how it was, and uh, tea on its own. So um, in the early 80s, there's uh, two shop claim they invented bubble teas, where they served both the boba and the tea. Mm. The name of the shop are like Chun Shui Tang and Min uh, Minion. I'm from Taizhong, and mm. so it's my like hometown. I I'm aware of those. They they they're really good. So in the 80s, a little background. Um, uh, it's booming. The economy is booming, and people are really busy. So there's a lot of tea shops serving iced tea, like like cocktail drinks. And um, there's like it's a gathering shop. And this shop happened to well, both shop claim. They both uh, <laughs> they both serve <laughs> boba on on the side as a dessert, and one of the employee oh. happened to drop the boba accidentally in their tea drink, and oh. that's how it well uh, how how it became a phenomenal. Wow. Um, once they tried it, it went crazy, and it just spread around uh, all over Taiwan. Now you see everywhere in the world, and uh, the term boba tea. Or bubble tea, there's actually like two. Um, like it came from uh, the tea shop originally. Um, Earlier, I was mentioning there's like a, a lot of tea shop. Uh, right. The name of it, in direct translations, of uh, uh, foam tea. Huh. Um, in 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 Chinese, uh, cha because uh the tea shop uh before they even put boba in, they are already called that because they shake the tea where the after shaking the tea there's a phone on top so bubble tea that's where it came from and once they drop the boba in, they serve it it's more of a reason to call it uh, boba tea or bubble tea because the the phone and the pearls all like you know let me reintroduce real quick talking
1: right now with jack Shaw, founder and owner of la tea lounge if you're just joining us it is food friday here i have five incredible looking drinks in front of me right now and uh, the boba pearls, and I've got to get them all uh, in in the next five minutes. But just to start off, I'm going to try the um, actual the beads, the, the boba bubbles themselves. Uh, Jack, what is it about yours that make them special?
8: Definitely. Mm. So my grandmom used to make oh. boba, like the dessert I was telling you about. Uh, she used to sell mm. it as a string vendor on its own it's like dessert so for over ice, or on its own just slurping it mm-hmm. um like like mm. a chewy dessert like gummy bear so in front of you like if you uh if you want to try try the boba this is how boba supposed to look like our boba is made from scratch with my grandmother's wow. recipe it tastes
1: unlike um, anything that i've ever had before can i just say i'm getting a brown sugar note thank you or, or like almost yes. like a molassesy finish um and it's not exactly. super some have like a dense chew to it and this one kind of strikes the perfect balance it is chewy, but it's not like you're you're fighting
8: it. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and that's how boba should be. Um, we don't we don't have any coloring preservatives, so if you you, you mm. can see the boba, you can mm. see through it. And we roast the boba, uh, we roast the brown sugar, the uh, the marinade Roasted. that goes into the boba, from from scratch, uh, like my grandmother used to. Give that a nice smoky. Caramel tone that you mentioned, molasses, molasses
1: wow. tone. I'm so thankful so, that you thought to share your grandmother's recipe with us. Though. Thank you for that. Definitely That's so, so wonderful. Really quickly, Jack, I want to dive into tasting some yes. of these drinks real quick. I have in yes, front of me please. the brown sugar milk tea.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if you would like, just give us some, some brief tasting notes as I try it, and then I'll share my thoughts mm-hmm. on it too.
8: Definitely. So brown sugar milk tea, are am utilizing my mm-hmm. grandmother's recipe, brown sugar syrup with the boba and and the oh. tea we use is a blend so nice. we I created um, with Assam blend and Assam black tea and Ceylon mm. blend. So you after drinking it you'll you'll taste a hint of very strong tea notes but yeah. not overly not over overpowering your palate like bitter. Right. You I've won't, noticed you won't, you won't find that.
1: I've noticed some boba's I've gotten they kind of almost have an orange color, or it's almost maybe a fake vanilla flavor in there. Um, Mm -hmm. This is entirely different, though, because it has an airiness to it. Uh, It's got an apparent Mm -hmm. freshness. Um, You can just tell that a lot of care went into it. You know, like I can tell you thought about every part of it, right? Um, Just reminding folks, uh, Instagram, LAist official, LAist official. If you'd like to see some of these magnificent beverages, they're not your standard, you know, Dixie cup uh, kind of drinks. Um, And you mentioned your tea blend. That's also very unique. I haven't encountered a Mm -hmm. place. Usually I think that they use one specific tea sometimes. I think it comes from Thailand. Um, Mm -hmm. You ventured out. I'm going to try your Earl Grey milk tea. Um, Earl Grey Mm -hmm. usually has bergamot oil in it, right?
8: Yep. Yes. And it has a lot of herbs and uh, even saffron. And uh, the drink is designed. um, It's not just your typical Earl Grey tea latte. We actually create Mm. a foam goes on top like a cream float, like a root beer float, but on the tea drink. And uh, so the way you enjoy it, just pop the lid, take a sip. You'll first taste the Earl Grey cream. Then the Earl Grey milk tea following Mm -hmm. it, it gives that refreshing and uh, strong aroma that you look for in the Earl Grey tea. So good. And we use organic Uh, organic Earl Grey to make all our ingredients. It's not a typical uh, practice for uh, bubble tea business because mostly it's imported from a factory. Uh, It has show life over a year. That's something I was not taught and that's not how my grandma used to do it. mm. That's something we want to stay true to our brand.
1: Jack Shao, I've got about one minute to get him one more tea. Mm -hmm. If I could choose between in front of me I have an ube creme brulee, incredible, or a tiramisu chocolate milk tea, which one should I choose?
8: Well, for, for you, I would will, I will like you to try the tiramisu. That's I will try another tiramisu. one of our signature. And, and as That's I try another it,
1: drink. I just want yep. to ask you really quickly with like the minute that we yes. have left. But I mean, what does it really mean to you? Because you're sharing your grandmother's recipe with people mm-hmm. in Los Angeles now. Um, that, that sounds special. That sounds really wonderful.
8: Mm-hmm. What, what yeah, does it mean well, for you? Well, it means mm. a lot. It's about our culture. Um, growing up, me and my cousin... Um, every time we go to our uh, grandma's place, she always um, welcome wow. us with, are you hungry? That's her way of caring and love. And in our culture, mm-hmm. that's huge. And that has a deep in fact, uh, effect in me. So that's something I, 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 well, I would like to carry and practice my business with. It's about caring and sharing our culture and love, uh, like treating your family. You you don't want to serve something you you won't enjoy with your friends and family, right? Yeah. So at least that's something I I want to inherit and pass it down and practice the business as how my grandma used to used to do it.
1: I will mention that I have been uh, sipping the tiramisu chocolate milk tea and <laughs> it is so good. It's unlike anything I've had. People are asking. I'll remind you that was Jack Shao, founder and owner of Latte Lounge. That's L A T E A tea lounge located in culver city jack thanks so much for coming on today
8: it's my pleasure and uh i cannot do it without my uh, business partner my cousin wait wait
1: (laughs) your cousin out in our green room right now props to your cousin for bringing it in so early in the morning i really appreciate it i'm austin cross this is air talk on a friday film week is coming up next thanks so much for hanging with me today
9: It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. I'm joined this week by critics Wade Major of Synagogues.com and Andy Klein, reviewer for AV Club. We begin with the musical adaptation Wonka, of course taken from the popular Roald Dahl book Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, this film is uh, the third to be based on the doll book. Timothy Chalamet stars in the film, directed by Paul King, who co-wrote the screenplay with Simon Farnaby. Wade, what did you think of Wonka?
10: I think it's charming, and it's, it's really interesting to kind of plug it into the overall corpus of the Wonka films, because it is, it is intended to very much to be a prequel, an origin story, to the Gene Wilder film. It erases the Tim Burton, Johnny Depp effort, and, and mercifully so. It it uh, uses m- many of the musical motifs from the Gene Wilder film. It adds a, a whole new song score of its own. I don't know why it's rated PG. This, this may be the most G-rated live-action film I've seen in a decade. Um, It's a wonderful family film for the season. Might be the only perfect live-action family film for the season. But what I loved is that Timothy Chalamet isn't trying to do Gene Wilder. He's not trying to not do Gene Wilder. He makes the character his own. This almost Capra-esque, aspirational young man who just loves chocolate, and he comes into town and faces this evil cartel of, you know, giant chocolate giants. And it felt like there was maybe a little bit of a metaphor for Hollywood there, for fighting the studios, you know, um... Uh, Paul King. This is his first studio film. He did the Paddington films previously. He has. He's the perfect filmmaker for this. But it, uh, the story of how he kind of rallies this ragtag bunch of out misfits. It just felt like a really wonderful classic American old school nineteen thirties forties mend uh, melding of all of those Capra esque sensibilities with something that's very true to Roald Dahl at the same time. I thought it was charming.
9: That's great. Wonka is the yeah. film. Andy.
11: Uh, respectful disagreement on (laughs) almost every, every aspect of that. Uh, uh, of course, Wade has a family and I don't, so I can't judge whether it's a perfect family film, Uh, but I found this utterly uncharming and Timothy Chalamet does nothing for me. Uh, he can't dance at all. And it's clear that the choreography has been worked out around his lack of ability to dance the score the only memorable moments in the score are the things that were lifted from the uh, gene wilder film uh i don't see how this this character this prequel creates the willy wonka we know it just doesn't quite compute to me uh yes it is very slickly worked out um with uh a lot, a lot of welcome slapstick and yes, some very good uh, gathering of the oddballs who each have one talent to be able to help Willie and his friends uh, triumph. But boy, oh boy, I thought this was forced whimsy all the way.
9: Wonka is the film. It's rated PG in wide release. Now you have to see it and decide for yourself. <laughs> Zack Snyder directs and co-wrote Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire, sci-fi action-adventure film. Uh, part 2, The Scargiver, is scheduled for release in the spring of next year. Wait, what did you think of this Part 1 of Rebel Moon?
10: Yeah, I was I was at the premiere last night, which Netflix spent a ton on, uh, a fa- fabulous party and hors d'oeuvres afterwards. They do it uh, at the Egyptian? They did it at the Chinese. Oh, Chinese. And then okay. they put a tent over the, the, blocked off the Hollywood Boulevard, put a tent up. It was amazing. So uh, I, I, I feel a little bit guilty <laughs> having to say I didn't hate it. Yeah. Um, you know, here's here's kind of the problem, and I've had a real up-and-down thing with Zack Snyder over the years. I used to just hate his movies mercilessly and, and say so, and then I had to eat a little bit of crow when his his Snyder cut of Justice League came out, which I thought was terrific. Not perfect, but really ambitious and, and you know, did all of the things that I'd always faulted him for not doing. This is a little bit of a backslide, and, and I don't want to say that it's a terrible film, but the problem is that he seems to be falling into the Wes Anderson trap of being... Um, uh, kind of hemmed in by his own style and expectations. And so it begins to feel like a pastiche of his own greatest hits, and the characters feel very straight-jacketed into accommodating his style and the expectations of that, the slow motion, you know, the the, the camera flare with the sunrises and, the you know, the kind of a, a slick, metallic look to everything. It's all there. But there really isn't much of a soul to it. It feels like a almost like an R-rated Star Wars film drained of its humanity. This presumably was originally a pitch for some kind of Star Wars universe story, which never made it there. So, um, you know, it's got elements of uh, samurai films, especially the Seven Samurai, westerns, maybe a little bit of Last of the Mohicans, big healthy helpings of Dune. A lot of the look is apparently borrowed from heavy metal, including the, the logo. But It's still derivative. It just feels as though we have seen every single one of these pieces somewhere else and better done. And part of me was thinking, I can't wait for Dune, the next Dune film, to see see how this kind of film is done correctly. Um, Again, it's not bad. It's going to be great for his fans. I mentioned this to a to a friend of mine who's a Zack Snyder fan. I said, "Yeah, it's derivative of all this." He goes, "It sounds great." <laughs> well, good. Knock yourself out. Um, but I don't think it's going to win any new fans.
9: Do, does the plot in Rebel Moon matter at all, or is it just about the visuals and the it, action?
10: It, it matters. I mean, it's kind of standard Joseph Campbell fair. You know, you have uh, Sophia Butella plays this this woman who is, uh, a, a, almost like a she's almost like a Marvel character in some sense, like like. Nebula from Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, orphaned, adopted by, you know, the one of the evil uh, generals of the the empire here is known as the home world. Um, You know, they substitute all these terms. It's not the empire. It's the home world. But they're facsimiles to all these things. And, you know, she winds up leading this kind of seven samurai type ragtag group to almost like in Wonka, except they're not, you know, (laughs) making chocolate. They're going toe to toe with the evil empire. But it's all stuff that we've seen done better in Star Wars.
9: We're talking about Rebel Moon Part One, A Child of Fire from director and co screenwriter Zack Snyder. Sophia Butella stars in the film. It's rated PG 13 Part Two. The Scar Giver in the Rebel Moon uh, 2 film series it comes in April of next year. The Zone of Interest is the UK's official submission for international film and Oscar consideration. The film is in German, Polish, and Yiddish with English subtitles, and it stars Sandra Hüller and Christian Friedel. Uh, the film takes us to the house of the commandant of Auschwitz, Rudolf Hoss, and his wife Hedwig, as the two of them share the home of... Uh, Uh, He, of course, during the day, goes to run the death camp next door to the house. Andy, what did you think of the zone of interest?
11: Uh, There was not a lot of interest in this zone for me. Uh, This film is basically one irony played out for two hours. Uh, And that irony being this, you know, seemingly well-to-do family with normal relations and their day-to-day stuff. And then in the background, you can hear occasionally over the walls, you can hear guard dogs and shots and people screaming. And that is pretty much the whole film. And there are two or three scenes where you actually see him discussing the final solution and discussing, uh, you know, a more efficient way to have crematoriums. All of that is fine in and of itself but you know sometimes presenting the banality of evil is itself banal which i found here now this film just won the big critics prize from the group wade and i are in the los angeles film critics association uh i don't see it i i was not voting this year but uh i just thought this was so one note and that the point was made 20 minutes in uh, I also have to say that inexplicably our group gave it best score (laughs) and this is a film where the entire score is three minutes of music over a black screen at the beginning and six minutes of music over the credits at the end there is no other score to speak of there's occasionally pop music that shows up, you know, of the period. But from Jonathan Glazer, who made the fabulous Sexy Beast, which I thought was a wonderful film and quirky and all kinds of adventure, adventuresome. To me, this was just, like I say, a, a one-note yeah. harping on something we already knew.
9: The zone of interest, the film we're talking about, Wade.
10: Yeah, I don't disagree. I, I actually don't dislike the film. I'm going to apparently say that a lot today. Um, I I like it better than Andy, but I, I think his criticisms are completely valid. They're they're spot on. And Jonathan Glazer's had a really interesting career. This is only his fourth film. He's been working for you know twenty some years. Uh, Sexy Beast and Birth, I both think are, are terrific. It's been films. ten years,
9: I think, since it's his been
10: last. Ten movie. years since the last one, which was Under the Skin, which I'm not a fan of. And I I do feel like he like between this and under the skin, he's he's going into almost more experimental directions. He's trying deliberately to subvert, you know, traditional filmmaking, traditional storytelling. And in the process, he's subverting our natural emotional connection to things. And um, that doesn't really work here. I know what he's going for. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking, you know, I, I've said here before, my mother, you know, was born in Germany and grew up there in the 1930s. So I grew up hearing the stories of what life was like there, not just what you see in documentaries. And so it's always interesting to me when I see it recreated so meticulously. And the depiction of, of you know, banal German life is very accurate and it's spot on. And It's a little bit eerie that it takes place right adjacent to a, a concentration camp and death but at the same time like andy said it, it's a it's one note and i and i couldn't help but think you know the film that did this right was the white ribbon the michael haneke film which takes place before world war 1 so it distances itself from the events of the future but it gives you the seeds this is the result And there's sort of, there's nothing for us to do as an audience. With the white ribbon, you look at it and you go, it's interesting. How are we going to get from there to what I know happened 20 years later?
9: So what do you think among your colleagues uh, in the LA Film Critics Association what do you think was so powerful for them about
10: the zone of interest? That's a very interesting question. There was a, there, there were some very lengthy email dialogues that went back and forth on this. And I think what a lot of people see in the film is what they want to see, which is a film that treats the Holocaust in a way that nothing else ever has, that kind of comes at it from a new direction and and that forces us to sort of see it as if we were there and on the ground. Uh again, I, you know, based on stories that I know growing up, that's not exactly what, what the film is doing. What the film is doing is exactly what Andy is saying. It's a little bit of a, of a cheap trick. But it's very easy to come at it as an outsider, as somebody who has seen nothing but hyper-dramatized Hollywood Holocaust films for years, and to see this as something fresh, as something more authentic, more legitimate. But I don't think it is. I think it's a it's a trick.
9: Yeah, you know, I, I saw the film the other night, and... Um... One of the things that bothered me, and this might seem so trivial when it comes to a movie with the kinds of heavy themes like this, was the sound design of it. Because when you hear the shots, when you hear the... It kept pulling me out of the film because the distance didn't seem right. It reminded me of when you go to a play and they have off-screen activity and they play a tape of stuff that's happening off stage. It seemed that unrealistic to me watching this film.
10: And that is actually why we also gave it score. It was argued that the sound design is revolutionary and is part of the theme and is part oh, of the provocation. I thought that it that, was
9: poorly done. And that That's that is
10: part of the score. It, it, there is a real division in the group. I don't mind saying that. Some people were very upfront in saying, the sound design and the score have nothing to do with each other. Please keep these things separate. You know, this is, this is is you're, you're sort of insulting the sound designer and the sound mixer by saying these things are conflated. Um, but, you know, it carried for a lot of people. That was, for a lot of people, that was very effective. It, but it, again, I think it is is deliberately overwrought and it calls attention to itself, and I agree.
9: The Zone of Interest is the film rated PG-13. You can see it at AMC's Century City and at the Vista Theater in Los Feliz, Jonathan Glazer. First film in a decade from him directed the film written by Martin Amis and Glazer. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. We're talking with Wade Major and Andy Klein. Our critics we will hear more about the films when we come back in one minute.
4: Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradicion that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
9: It's Film Week on L.A. 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Andy Klein and Wade Major. In case you tuned in late... I know you still want to hear the reviews of Wonka starring Timothy Chalamet, Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire from director Zack Snyder, and The Zone of Interest, which has so much critical buzz, chosen by the LA Film Critics Association as their feature film of the year. You can still hear those reviews by going to com or by downloading the Film Week podcast wherever you get your audio. The French romantic drama The Taste of Things stars Juliette Binoche and Benoit Magimel. The film is written and directed by Tron Ang Hung, based on a 1961 novel, The Passionate Epicure. Wade, what did you think of The Taste of Things?
10: Do not go to see this movie Hungry. <laughs> okay. Don't. <laughs> um, it, I, I love this film. I truly love this film. This may be the most French, French film I've seen in over 30 years. That's saying something. It's dripping with Frenchness. And, uh, you know, the film opens with a very lengthy sequence where they're just making food. It's just, it's like you're sitting in the kitchen with them in 1889, watching them make food 19th century style. And it's not narrative, but it's just, it's magnetic. It just draws you in and you you, you just want to stay there and live in the kitchen. Um, it's very interesting. Tran Anh Hung, you know, is a, is a Vietnamese expat, lives in France, has lived most of his life in France. But his films have been, you know, previous films like The Scent of Green Papaya, considered very very much definitive of the the Vietnamese cultural representation in in film. He's sort of been the icon of, of Vietnamese cinema. And here he's doing something that is uniquely French. I mean, he lives with one foot in each world, and he clearly has it mastered. Um... What I love about this is, in fact, the relationship between Benoit Majumel and Juliette Binoche. Story of, of a chef, an obsessive chef, and his, his, his personal cook and sous chef who have this long standing relationship. He wants her to marry him, she won't say yes but it's this beautiful relationship that is sort of that is that is lived out in food and their the way they make food together is is almost as passionate if not more passionate than their sexual relationship and um, the development of that relationship and knowing if you do know that Juliette Benoche and Benoît Magimel were together at one point so they have a history that they had to bring back to this film and work out on screen. Um, and then, of course, you know, Tron Unhung has a visual sensibility that is, is second to none. His sense of lighting and staging and shadow and, and contrast is just absolutely yeah. picture perfect. The, the, the,
9: the visuals in his films are just it gorgeous. It is
10: so poetic. And, uh, I, you know, you just feel like you're living in, in this, this culinary world in 1889 France. And it's wonderful. And I didn't want to leave.
9: We're talking about France's official submission for Best International Feature, The Taste of Things, from uh, writer and director Tran Ang Hong. Andy, what did you think?
11: Uh, I can't disagree with much of what Wade said, but I was much less enthusiastic. Uh, Indeed, the two leads are wonderful together, and that really is the making of the film. Uh, In The Scent of Green Papaya, which was Tron's first film, uh, you could smell the green papaya. You could (laughs) smell the things on the screen. It was incredibly evocative that way. You could almost feel the humidity in Vietnam. It was visually incredibly evocative. Here... I felt like I was listening to people talking about food and I'm watching them make it. And I have to confess, I'm not that interested in them making it. And particularly as they go on and on about characteristics of food that are vastly too subtle for my palate, that are, that are just way beyond me. And that may be my failing. Um, uh, I was not made to be a food critic uh it is lovely in a lot of ways julia pinoche is just fabulous as always and yes the relationship is very engaging uh but i just uh, for me it was a little too much cooking i mean that opening sequence is literally a half hour of preparing and eating <laughs> real time preparation kidding. so good. I timed it. yeah
9: there you hear the contrast. Oh. We're talking about the film *The Taste of Things*, the French film written and directed by Tran Anh Hung. Uh, it's unrated. You can see it at the Lemley Royal Theater in West Los Angeles, and then uh, in February of next year, it opens for a wider audience. Again, France's official submission for Best International Feature to the Oscars. The comedic drama *American Fiction* tells the story of a frustrated novelist whose whose book keeps uh, keeps getting too turned down because uh, it, it's not considered to be commercial um, and, and what is, is uh, typically purchased for quote "black novels. Jeffrey Wright stars in the film, Tracy Ellis Ross, Issa Rae, Sterling K. Brown in the cast. The movie's written and directed by Cord Jefferson based on the novel Erasure written by Percival Everett. Andy, what do you think of American fiction?
11: I quite like this. Uh, First of all, it was great to see Jeffrey Wright in a lead role because I think he's a wonderful actor who has been in supporting roles for just about everybody. Um, The premise here is a very over the top satire of just how stupid the white literary establishment is. And even though I think that they are, they're not quite this Stupid, <laughs> but it's satire well it, yeah it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a
9: satire yeah
11: i mean he's a guy who's who is just furious when he sees his books in the african-american section rather than the literature section which is totally understandable uh he decides just as a joke to write the most to take on another id of a gangster. And write this incredibly violent memoir with all these, uh, you know, just dumbing down his language and giving them exactly the kind of patronizing, oh, this is the real Black experience stuff. He does not mean for it to be published. And of course, as you can predict, <laughs> it's a hit. It gets published and it's a huge hit. Uh, And he is struggling with his guilt. I mean, he keeps trying to sabotage it. At one point, he figures he can stop this whole process by insisting that they change the name of the book to the world's best known four-letter
10: word.
9: Let me stop you there, Ed, because we don't want to get too far into the film okay. and reveal what happens. But, okay. but wait, but what, what did you think me. about American fiction?
10: Absolutely loved it. I think this is a great film, one of the best films of the year. It's going to get Oscar nominations, especially for screenplay and for Jeffrey Wright, guaranteed. Uh, watch me eat those words if they screw it <laughs> up. But, but no, I think this is a great, great film. Um, Cord Jefferson, this is writing and directing debut as a feature. He's been a TV writer for some time, very successful TV writer. Uh, but here he really brings something incredibly personal to this. You know, uh, Cord Jefferson is biracial. So he has, again, it, like as with uh, Tron Anhung, he has a foot in, you know, one foot in two different worlds. And, and he sees a lot of our racial politics through a, a, a for, as hypocritical as, in ways that others may not. You know, he sees it from all these different perspectives. And so he comes at this and says, I'm going to tell the story of a black man who is black and was proud to be black and who has a black experience that does not fit any mold. It's a black experience because it's his. And because he's black and you thereby, you have to take him at his word. But no one does. Everyone wants him to be a different kind of black man. They wanted to be their kind of black man, the kind of black man that assuages their conscience, that makes them feel better about racial politics. And he he takes this very heady subject... And he tackles it in a, in a in a way that that it doesn't feel preachy. It's not a polemic. It's really it, funny. It's really funny. It's clever. It's got romance in it. It's got really insightful family dynamics. I mean, everything about Jeffrey Wright's family in this movie is really compelling. His relationship with his brother, with his mother, with his sister. It, it you know the, it's a medical family. They're doctors and. And it's really quite... He's the black sheep of the family. He's the non-doctor in it, you know? So all of these things create this wonderfully textured tapestry that makes you reflect on, you know, our current politics, but not in a way that is is polemical. And it, it it's just such a wonderful trick.
9: Well, and I love the idea that he faces this moral quandary. So he hasn't been able to get it, published in it. So here he's hugely successful for a phony. Yeah, It's lot,
10: basically yeah. Tootsie. It's a it's a racialized Tootsie. It's, you know, it's one of these imposter films. And, you know, some like it hot, obviously, was one of those two. So, I mean, we get these every once in a while. And it's a wonderful conceit to use to make a statement, um, without appearing to make a statement. But I also want to say that, you know, was part of our voting, we get sent the screenplays. So I, I got the, sc- the actual physical screenplay. It is a joy to read. Not every well-written film is a joy to read yeah, on the page. Yeah. Cord Jefferson has a wonderful way with screenplay prose. And that's saying something, because screenplays can be arduous to get through. His was like, it was like reading a wonderful novelette.
9: That's great. Uh, We're talking about American fiction from writer-director Cord Jefferson. Jeffrey Wright stars in the film. The comedic drama is rated R. You can see it in select AMC theaters. Freud's Last Session stars Anthony Hopkins and Matthew Goode. Matt Brown is the director and co-screenwriter with Mark St. Germain, and it's based on a play written by St. Germain set on the eve of World War II towards the end of Freud's life. The film sees Anthony Hopkins as Freud invite the iconic author C.S. Lewis for a debate over the existence of God. Wade, what did you think of Freud's Last Session?
10: It's well done, but I just it didn't work for me, and I and this is the kind of film that I normally love. I mean, this has me written all over it. Yeah. The the problem here is that it's it's theorizing about an an event that may have taken place based on the the loosest of extrapolation, which is that Freud met with a, a certain professor. Well, could that professor have been C.S. Lewis? Well, yeah, it could have been 500 other people too. You know, we don't know. But but he tries to have the. It's appealing because Freud was an atheist. C.S. Lewis, obviously, a, a man who went from atheism to belief and became sort of a, a the preeminent uh, Christian theologian of his era. And it, it it wants to sort of put those two giants in the room and have them wrestle over the subject of God. The problem is they don't really wrestle very convincingly over God. Freud is not represented as very Freudian. And when you consider that Anthony Hopkins also once played C.S. Lewis, he played uh, the other right. side of this in Shadowlands.
9: Yeah,
10: yeah. Uh, he got that right. So I, I I kept wondering, well, why isn't Anthony Hopkins telling them that, you know, Matthew Good, the way the character is written for Matthew Good is not C.S. Lewis, not even close. He doesn't conjure up any of C.S. Lewis's arguments. He doesn't bring the, you know, the firepower that C.S. Lewis brought. He, and, and by the same token, Anthony Hopkins isn't really bringing the gravitas of Freud. So it's two figures occupying the names, but not the actual flesh and blood of the two figures they're depicting. And it you know that's all in the writing the writing is just insubstantial it doesn't rise to the conceit that it's it, it, that it's asp- it well, doesn't it, it has an aspiration that it just doesn't rise to
9: it's it's a daunting task if it you're going to take two geniuses like this Lewis and Freud and you're going to have them debate the existence of God I mean you you've, you've got to really bring it in, you have to that.
10: bring it but the, but but both of them wrote copiously it's not as if you don't have yeah, ample yeah. source material to fill that dialogue in to paraphrase and it just that's the that's the problem I have I've read Freud I've read C S Lewis I find them both really compelling and powerful and there's enough in their own writings that there should have been more meat on these bones and there isn't.
9: We're talking about Freud's last session, adapted from Mark Saint Germain's play. Germain uh, Saint Germain writing it with Matt Brown, Brown directing the film. Anthony Hopkins and Matthew Good. It's a two-hander. The only the two actors. Wait, is that no? Right, there, are
10: they others, more? but it's it is for the most part a two-hander. Yeah.
9: It's rated PG-13. You can see it at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. It opens next Thursday and goes into wider release in the new year. Uh, We can at least get started on the Japanese action film Godzilla Minus One, written and directed by Takashi Yamazaki. Andy, just get a start, please, on Godzilla Minus One.
11: Uh, This is the Godzilla film that Godzilla fans have been waiting for. (laughs) Uh, This is probably my second or third favorite film of the week. It absolutely delivers without a touch of campiness.
9: Yeah, hold hold that, and we'll come back to it. Godzilla Minus One is the film from Takashi Yamazaki. It's rated PG-13 in Japanese with English subtitles. The film actually released uh, just a couple of weeks ago, but we weren't able to include it in Film Week without the a screening they were, they were able to attend. So we're uh, catching up on the film right now. We'll also hear about the documentary on the artist on. An- Anselm Kiefer, uh, who's a particularly innovative painter and sculptor. Vim Venders, the filmmaker, turned his attention to Anselm in a new documentary. We'll hear about that. We also have a documentary coming up on Jean-Luc Godard, the filmmaker as well. You're listening to Film Week on LAist 89.3. More to come from Andy and Wade.
4: Support for L.A.S. comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradicion that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
9: It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. In case you just joined us and you feel like, gee, I want to hear all the reviews that came before, it's not too late to do that. You can get the podcast wherever you get your audio or at Elias.com. Our critics this week from AV Club, Andy Klein, and Synagogues.com, Wade Major. We're talking about Godzilla Minus One, which has been out for a couple of weeks now, from writer-director Takashi Yamazaki and uh, scoring very high points with Godzilla fans. We'll hear more of what Andy has to say, but Wade, uh, d- did you like it as much as Andy?
10: I didn't like it as much as Andy I don't dislike it there I go again um I, it's fine you know I grew up on the Ishiro Honda films yeah from you know the I mean as a kid all from the from the 50s all the way into the 70s. And, you know, I enjoy those for what they were. They're, you know, kind of cheap and cheesy, but for, you know, as Mothra. a kid, you, you love them. <laughs> and this is like a really big budget, you know, high-end version of those. It still has the, the weepy Japanese melodrama. It's got all the pieces that those films had. And I think that's partly what Andy means, he can correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, when he says this is the, the Godzilla movie people have been waiting for. They want it to have all of those elements from those earlier films. They don't want Godzilla attacking New York or Baltimore. Baltimore, yeah. London. They want Godzilla attacking Tokyo. Godzilla is supposed to attack Tokyo. These are the things that are supposed to happen. The 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 Roland Emmerich film and the Gareth Edwards movie from 1998 and 2014 both tried to give Godzilla a more realistic physical appearance, make him look more dinosaur-like. Apparently, people don't want that. They want him to look like a guy in a suit. This Godzilla looks like a guy in a suit. So I I can appreciate that. It doesn't, you know, I don't think it's a great film or anything. I think it speaks to how starved people are for something different. It's fine. It's got some good moments. I didn't go crazy for it.
9: All right. Andy, back for you for a rejoinder on Godzilla minus one.
11: Yeah, obviously I liked it a lot more than Wade did. I found it a breath of fresh air. Uh, The fact that we had Godzilla without any little, you know, singing twins and without (laughs) all that stuff. This is more or less similar to the very first Godzilla in the original Japanese version. It's true. Uh, But with vastly better special effects. And yes, it looks like a guy in, in a monster suit, but it's actually really great CGI for that. Uh, but it it cleaves very closely to what Godzilla is supposed to look like. It's got the nuclear themes in there again, which have not always been consistent in these films. But most of all, the fact that there is no campiness to this, this is just a good action film. Uh, I was not bothered by the family uh, dynamic... uh, uh, the sort of melodrama aspects of it, I thought that all fit in perfectly. If you have any taste for Godzilla at all, I think this is a must-see.
9: You know, the original, to sell it to the U.S. audience, they filmed scenes with Raymond Burr yeah. where, where yeah. you know, he came in. And there was just sort of these strange scenes. It's,
10: it's, it's just, you have to see it in the, the original Godzilla minus Raymond Burr is what yeah, you want right? to see. Yeah, right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. As much
9: as you might like I, Raymond Burr, yeah.
11: I, I actually like both versions of the original very much because as a kid, I initially saw the Raymond Burr version. And because of this weird dynamic of them shooting him separately and editing him in, there was this really bizarre sense of displacement. And the structure of the mm-hmm. film was very, very odd. Yeah, And all of that, I mean, I think it's one of the best jobs with the exception of uh, uh, the baby cart uh, film, uh, Shogun Samurai. It's one of the best jobs of taking a foreign film re-editing it to- totally and turning it into something that is really very worthwhile on its on its own ground.
9: I also think a lot of the success of Godzilla is the name of the creature. Yes. It's just Godzilla. It's such yeah. which it's is such a mispronunciation. A oh really? How Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah.
10: It, the actual yeah. name in Japan is Gojira. Oh, G-O-J-I-R-A. But, you know, Americans being as slovenly yeah. as we are, we pronounce it as Godzilla, <laughs> and there we are.
9: Godzilla minus one is rated PG-13 in Japanese with English subtitles, and it's still in white release. Anselm, a documentary from director Wim Wenders, a portrait of Anselm Kiefer, a painter and sculptor. The film is shot in 3D with 6K resolution. Wade, what did you think of Anselm?
10: So I did not see it in 3D because 3D gives me a headache um so i can't evaluate the 3d for those for whom that matters also full disclosure my wife worked with vim vendors on four straight films including two documentaries so i'm i'm very very close to vim's uh methodology and and process in that regard and i have to say this is an extraordinarily um, meticulous film it it took him years to put this together it's it i i don't want to really call it a documentary because it's You know, documentary suggests something that this film is not. This is almost a, a meditation on the man and his work. I'm not familiar with, with Anselm. As, a, as Anselm Kiefer is the the artist, sculptor, and a, a painter. Very controversial in some circles because he, he dips into Germany's past, into, into its fascist and Nazi past, and integrates a lot of that into his art. And uh, the statements aren't always necessarily clear to people. But um, the way that, that Wenders takes us through his art, through his life... In, in an almost ethereal, dreamlike journey. You're almost floating through this in a nonlinear way. Um, it's quite compelling, and, and it puts you inside the art, and I can only imagine the 3D enhances this, but it puts you inside the art in a way that very few films about art and artists ever have. It's not necessarily narrative, so people may be a little bit off, put off by the fact that it doesn't seem to have a, an overt structure to it. It's not biographical necessarily, but it does have a, a rhythm and a pace and it takes you from point A to point B. And um, if you can if you can kind of get into the groove that Vendors is creating here, it's quite an quite an engaging sit.
9: We're talking about the documentary Anselm, which is at Lemley's Glendale Theater and the AMC Santa Monica 7. It's available to be seen in 3D, the film in German with English subtitles. And Vendors uh, has a a narrative film that's due out early next year called Perfect Days, all shot in Japan. Yeah. Uh, And uh, so we'll look forward to hearing what our critics have to say about that next month. Anselm is unrated, uh, and again, you can see it at Lemley's Glendale and the AMC Santa Monica 7. Godard Cinema is a documentary about the French filmmaker. Uh, The documentary is directed by Cyril Lutti. What did you think, Andy, of Godard Cinema?
11: Uh, I thought this was a very well done job of going through Godard's career. It really is straightforward that way. And it divvies up his career really at at the natural breaking points. Uh, It's impossible to overstate how important Godard was to film buffs of my generation in the 60s. And... uh, That first eight years where he made something like 16 or 17 films, all of them totally different from each other and all of them filled with innovation and uh, just most of them incredibly enjoyable. And that's the largest part of this film. It's, It's the first, I guess, third of the film. And then you get to the late 60s, his political period where he lost almost all his audience, where (laughs) everything is Maoism. Uh, The rest of the film, you see him recuperating from his political period in two different sections when he eventually starts making things that are releasable in the United States again and that have some of the old Godard to them. I thought this was a really good scan of his career which you know you could do 12 hours about because he was so impactful uh it it is showing along with his final short which is nothing basically which is looks like it is some experimental scraps that they didn't know what to do.
9: Well, I love the title of a trailer of the film that will never exist, Phony Wars. That's the title of the short, yeah. short film. We'll hear what Wade has to say about Godard Cinema, the documentary on the life of Jean-Luc Godard and his filmmaking. That's coming up. You're listening to Film Week on LAS 89.3. More to come from Wade Major and Andy Klein when we come back in just one minute. Film Week on L.A. A 9.3. Larry Mantle joined by critics Andy Klein and Wade Major. We're talking right now about the documentary on French filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard. It's titled Godard Cinema. The film is directed by Cyril Lutie, And uh, it's available to be seen at Lemley's Royal in West L.A. And then it's going to be opening up on Monday at additional Lemley Theaters. Wait, what did you think of this documentary on Godard?
10: So, Michel Aznavisius, who made, uh, who won the Oscar for *The Artist*, made a comedy a few years ago called *Godard Mon Amour*, in which he basically just takes jabs at Godard and how ridiculous he clearly thinks Godard is, with all of his self-importance and his, you know, overt political pomposity. And I, I think Aznavisius and I probably come at Godard the same way. I recognize Godard's significance as a filmmaker. I actually quite love many of the films. Breathless, I think, is wonderful. Uh, You know, his early films certainly, I think, are very impactful. But the yin and yang of of the new wave and a French cinema from that period are Godard and Truffaut. Colleagues who were friends and then became bitter enemies later in life because Godard was the the middle the the upper class Swiss kid who turned his back on his upper class and became you know the Maoist and Truffaut was the street kid from France who became kind of a middle class and upper class you know uh, very bourgeois and 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 sentimental in his sensibilities and so they took opposite trajectories and crossed in the middle and 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 never talked again. I am team Tru- Truffaut. I will say that unapologetically. Godard's films, apart from you know things like *Breathless* and certainly, uh, you know, the the more narrative stuff, um, *Le Mepris*, uh, you know, uh, the *Contempt*. I think is a wonderful film as well. But he gets on my nerves too much. When he really gets in, gets into himself, and I think so much of this is about how into himself he is. You have people analyzing him and saying, you know, he the reason that Godard hates the audience is because he needs them <laughs> to love him, and by hating him, they will love him. And you get into all of this kind oh of this stuff that doesn't yeah. make sense. It just none of it makes sense. You even have Godard on, you know, saying like I, I had to make a film that people hated because I, I didn't like the fact that they liked my films. And you almost want to slap him at that point. It's just, it's pretentious on a level that we associate with the with some of the most annoying filmmakers of the 1960s. And they're just trying to be alternative because that's what you were supposed to be. But it doesn't make any sense. And there's no way to make it make sense. And so I get why this film is important. I get why Godard is important. But it all still got on my nerves.
9: And just clarify, we we do not condone violence against filmmakers in any way. <laughs> <laughs> Despite that impulse wave, Godard Cinema's the documentary at multiple Lemley's locations, uh, opening more of the Lemley's beyond the Royal and West L.A. starting on Monday. Uh, Andy, do you want to just come back uh, w- with a quick response to what Wade said?
11: Yeah, I I wonder. I mean, Wade actually likes the same Godard films I like the most. I mean, that first eight years of films are just wonderful. L- yeah, they uh, are. However, I, I, I also like some of the stuff after uh, about 1984, things like Detectif uh, and Hail Mary and a few others in there that uh, I think are have the spirit of old Godard, even though, yes, they are filled with all sorts of bizarre sort of avant garde type devices All right. that nobody else would be doing. But some of this may be generational because for those of us who were teenagers growing up on foreign films in the 60s, Godard was just more than a breath of fresh air.
9: Let's move on, talk about the action comedy, The Family Plan, starring Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Monaghan. Simon Jellen jones is the director. David uh, Coggeshell is the screenwriter. Wait, what would you think of The Family Plan?
10: I didn't hate it. I actually... <laughs> that is the theme for yeah, you this week. and I actually kind of like it, although I'm not proud of it. So it's, it kind of goes into one of those guilty pleasure things. This would have been a great movie in the 80s. And it's, it's one of those um, those double life as a spy, double life as an assassin films. We've had a ton of those. You know, True Lies and, and the French film that it was originally based on. Nobody with Bob Odenkirk uh, most recently is very much the same plot as this one. Mr. and Mrs. Smith in which you have Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. You know, two of them in one family. So, I mean, we get a lot of traction in Hollywood movies and in certainly some foreign films out of this idea. Mark Wahlberg used to be a top government assassin. Now he's just living a wonderful family life, married to Michelle Monahan, and they've got three kids and they're living in Buffalo, New York, and everything is just wonderful. But he's such a boring guy. He doesn't want to ever be on social media. He doesn't want to go on vacations. They want to give him employee of the month. No, no, let somebody else be it. And of course, it seems like he's a boring guy, but what he really wants is to keep his face out of the media. He doesn't want to be found out because he he quit the the the, the job and all of his former colleagues have been looking for him for 10-15 years trying to assassinate him. Well, they find him. And uh, you know, the family have to go on a road trip and for about half the film he's able to keep it secret from the family and we all know kind of where this is going to go. There's nothing surprising in this. Every single twist, every setup, every payoff, you've seen it before. But Mark Wahlberg plays it straight. He doesn't play it quite like Schwarzenegger did. A little bit, a little bit, you yeah. know, broad, somewhat tongue and somewhat yeah. tongue in cheek. Uh, he doesn't even play it like Bob Odenkirk did, which is just really gritty and a little bit scary. He plays it like a family man. And there's something wonderful about that. It's weird to me that the two guys who became, like, the great movie dads are Ice Cube and Mark Wahlberg <laughs> because those are the two that originally you would think, oh, they're, no, they're just not those people. But they are. And the secret weapon in this film is Michelle Monaghan. She is wonderful. She steps up. She measures Mark Wahlberg every step of the way. When things go south, you are on her side. You are not on his. She is the moral center of the film, and she is magnetic. And it might just be one of the most wonderful performances of her career. Well, I was going to
9: say for a wife to not just sort of be an adjunct, yeah. but to, to be at the center of the film as well, that's, that's unusual. It's,
10: it's incredible. It is, it is very. It is as much about her as it is about him.
9: We're talking about The Family Plan, starring Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Monaghan. The film is rated PG-13, and it's streaming on Apple TV+. We have just about a minute yet, uh, left, and I, I wanted to ask both of you just real quickly, and Wade, I'll start with you. When you run contrary in your reviews to the overwhelming majority of your peers, like on the film The Zone of Interest, yeah. which won the LaFKA Best uh, Feature Film uh, honor, how do you feel about that when you feel like you're comparatively alone?
10: I uh, I enjoy my island. I've said <laughs> that before, and and this has happened to me on uh, many occasions. You know, there's the uh, Stephen Elliott film Eye of the Beholder, which I called one of the greatest thrillers ever made. Everyone else panned it, and then there's Breaking the Waves, which made you know top ten lists and was best film of the year. I I made it my worst of the year, and not to be provocative, but I really I'm, I'm okay with that.
9: Yeah, I'm with you on.
10: I'm that. okay with that.
9: <laughs> hey Andy, what about for you?
11: Yeah, uh, I it is sort of a badge of pride a lot of the time, uh, particularly on films that I love that everybody else hates. Yeah, it's uh, fun to go to know, bat that for is, those. Yeah, I mean that is a great thrill to go to bat for something that nobody else is really getting and the audience eventually does get it generally I really, I, I I would have been on that island at this meeting if I had been there voting on <laughs> this right. film. Andy hey. Klein
9: is a uh, film critic and reviewer for AV Club. Wade Major for Synagogues.com. For our critics, I'm Larry Mantle. In case you joined us late, hear the full hour of Film Week wherever you get your podcasts or at com. Have a wonderful weekend. Next week we're back with the year end in films. Some big releases that are coming out for the holiday season. We'll talk with you then.
0: The L.A.S. Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism.